Section 18 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Byzantine Empire, the Rearguard of European Civilization, by Edward Ford. Section 18, The Coming of the Turks. The disorderly elements, which had been sternly suppressed by Basil II, and held in check by the ill-defined but powerful influence of the daughters of Constantine IX, broke loose on the death of Theodora. She had designated as her successor the aged general Michael Stratioticos. Theodosius Monomachos, nephew of Constantine X, endeavored to seize the throne, but the puny revolt which he raised in the capital was put down with ridiculous ease. The authority of Michael VI was not upheld by an alliance with a lady of imperial blood, and he was face to face with the banded strength of the great territorial aristocracy, which had grown up during the long centuries of frontier war, largely induced by it. The situation was very much what it had been under the successors of Justinian, but even more dangerous. The nobles were banded together by community of interests, and disposed of very considerable military resources. Many of them could raise small armies from among their tenants and serfs, and a considerable part of the regular troops had feudal ties and sentiments. General Nikephoros Komnenos had been disgraced by Constantine IX for requiring his troops to take an oath to himself personally. The circumstance shows the curious semi-independent attitude of the military magnates. It was a member of this house of Komnenos who was chosen by the nobles as emperor. The Komnenoi do not appear very early in history. The first of whom we hear was Manuel, who defended Abydos against Bardos Scleros in 978. Like most aristocratic families, it would appear that they sprang from very humble beginnings. The plans of the aristocracy were precipitated and endangered by the rashness of Nikephoros Briennios, who revolted prematurely and was captured and blinded. Isaac Komnenos was hastily proclaimed Augustus at Castamon in Paphlagonia, on June 8, 1057. For the moment, he was in danger, having few troops about him, but he was speedily joined by the distinguished General Catacallon with a strong force, of which he had obtained the command by forging an order. They entered Nicaea without opposition, and a spectacular but not very bloody battle was fought nearby, in which Isaac gained a complete victory. On August 31st, Michael VI abdicated, and on September 2nd, Isaac was crowned emperor in Hagia Sophia. It must be said for the nobles that they had chosen a strong man, though it is, of course, possible that they did not realize so much. Once on the throne, Isaac I remembered that he was the Roman emperor and not the mere spokesman of a party, and his former associates soon became alienated. He deposed the intriguing patriarch Michael Carolarios and elevated in his place Constantine Lycoudes, who had been Constantine X's president of the Senate. The fact is worth noting the strong Isaac I deliberately promoted a creature of the supposedly contemptible Monomachos. He appears to have made reforms in both civil and military departments. He was, we are told, hated by all, which points to alterations which struck at personal interests everywhere. The army was over-officered. Like the French army of Louis XV, it was full of young aristocrats who held commissions by virtue of birth and court favor. Isaac deprived them all. He repelled an invasion of Magyars and Pekinegs, but in September 1059 suddenly abdicated and retired into a monastery. He was in ill health, but there were probably other reasons, 
Perhaps he had already lost hope of being able to carry through reforms in face of the solid phalanx of opposition. In his place, the nobles appointed Constantine Ducas. Finley remarks that his appointment does not reflect credit on Isaac's judgment, but probably he had little or nothing to do with it. The whole affair is clouded in mystery. We cannot even say definitely that Isaac's retirement was voluntary. At all events, Constantine XI reversed his predecessor's policy. He was supposed to have financial ability, but his measures were characterized by sheer idiocy. It is really difficult to select a milder word. How far he was ruled by a jealous civilian ministry we do not know. He must bear his share of the blame. His main idea seems to have been the formation of a treasury reserve at any cost. The method adopted was to starve the defensive services. Economy in time of peace may often be necessary and very salutary, but peace the Eastern Empire never knew. The Seljuk Turks had established themselves at Baghdad in 1056, and the whole force of their power was about to be directed against the empire. Yet in face of this, Ducas neglected the navy and reduced the army. The reductions were made on a principle not recognized except in comic opera. The spectacular officers who had been deprived by Isaac I were restored while the rank and file were cut down. The pay of the native troops, who for four centuries had been the backbone of the army, was reduced. The effective service was starved and ruined to serve no useful purpose. In other ways, the emperor showed his pettiness. He had an affectation for letters and was guilty of the bad taste of declaring that he prized his knowledge of literature above his imperatorship. A literary emperor who neglects his obvious duties is beneath contempt. In 1060, the Seljuks came through Taurus and sacked Sebaste. There were no troops to meet them, though 50 years before the raiders would not have passed the frontier. The Seljuks returned homeward unmolested, but, turning to seize a fresh success at Edessa, were gallantly repulsed. Next year there were other raids, and in 1063 the great Sultan Alp Arslan, who had succeeded Togrul Beg, crossed the Araxes and ravaged Georgia. Alp Arslan appears to have had definite ideas of conquest, as opposed to Togrul's mere plundering raids. The extraordinarily rapid movements of the hordes of mounted Seljuk bowmen made it extremely difficult to cope with them, even had the army been less ineffective. On June 6, 1064, Alp Arslan stormed Ani, the Roman capital of Armenia. The strong city, whose imposing ruins are described with appreciative care by Mr. Lynch, made a fine resistance, but fell at last, chiefly because there was no field force to make a diversion in its favor. Seljuk raiding bands penetrated the eastern frontier and rode over Mesopotamia, Melitene, Chaldea, and Colonia, killing and pillaging with little opposition. Constantine was as unfortunate in Europe. In 1064, Belgrade was taken by the Magyars, and next year the Tartar Uzes broke into Bulgaria, defeated such troops as could be opposed to them, and penetrated as far as Thessalonica and Chorlu, near the capital. There, however, they were defeated and dispersed, but meanwhile the Seljuks wasted without check. The general misery was completed by an earthquake, which did much damage in Thrace and Bithynia. Amid these misfortunes and disasters, mostly of his own making, Constantine XI died in 1067. His wife, Eudocia Macrambolotitsa, assumed the regency for her young son, Michael VII. Constitutional custom required that she should marry, but she chose to consult inclination in preference to policy and selected as her husband, Romanus Diogenes, who had incurred the late emperor's deep suspicion. 
She thereby alienated the entire powerful house of Ducas in general, and in particular Constantine's brother John, whom he had created Caesar. Romanus, a soldier by profession and temperament, and hampered at home by the opposition of ministers and the enmity of the Ducai, had little choice, even had the external danger been less threatening, except to take the field. His difficulties were immense. Apart from his personal limitations, he was looked upon askance by many of the military nobles, and could not count upon their cordial support. These limitations also counted for much. He was hardly a good general, being rash and impulsive, and with little power of calm judgment. The army was in the worst condition. Many of the famous Themes were mere shadows, and the means were lacking to restore them. The mercenaries were insolent and mutinous. All ranks were more or less demoralized. The military administration was out of gear. Equipment and transport needed renewal. Worst of all, the heavy Byzantine cavalry, which for 500 years had held every enemy at bay, could ill cope with the elusive Seljuks. The army which Romanus collected was a strange congeries of regular troops, feudal levies brought by the great eastern nobles, and heterogeneous mercenaries. He committed a fatal error in taking the field before he could organize and reduce to order these discordant elements. The reason probably was that his uncertain position made it dangerous for him to remain inactive. Having assembled such forces as were available, he advanced to the Taurus, but meanwhile, a mass of Turkish raiders slipped past his left flank, crossed Cappadocia into Pontus, and sacked Neo-Caesarea. Romanus marched to intercept them with a picked force, defeated them, and recovered most of the plunder. He then marched into Syria and fortified Membij as a frontier station. But while thus engaged, another Seljuk horde swept through Cappadocia and Phrygia, sacked Amorium, and escaped. The first campaign therefore ended in very doubtful fashion, for if a Seljuk force had been defeated, two important places had been sacked, and the Turk, true to his nature, invariably massacred and destroyed. When he could not carry away captives, he murdered them. Every raid involved immense slaughter and destruction. Ten years of Seljuk warfare probably completed the destruction of the free peasant population of Asia Minor and enormously diminished the serfs. Many cities were destroyed, and those which survived, overcrowded with fugitives from the countryside, became mere dens of famine and pestilence. In 1069, the untrustworthy nature of the army was shown by the outbreak of a dangerous mutiny among the Norman mercenaries, which had to be suppressed before the emperor could take the field. Romanus advanced eastward in a wide front, and thus cleared wasted Cappadocia of Seljuk bands, but a horde defeated Philaritos, Duke of Antioch, and pushed into Lyconia as far as Iconium. Romanus intercepted it as it returned through the Cilician hills. The Turks were caught and only escaped with great loss and the abandonment of their booty. Romanus's second campaign thus concluded with a victory, but the extreme mobility of the Turks was more than ever apparent. The emperor's victories availed little when his enemies were raiding his communications far behind him. Next year, Romanus did not take the field in person. His difficulties at home were great. The intrigues of the Ducai were endless and persevering. In Italy, the imperial authority, which Constantine X had upheld by his wise policy of conciliation, was tottering to its fall. The Normans were now masters in the open country and had taken between 1057 and 1070 most of the coast fortresses, including Toronto and Reggio. Only Bari held out and in 1068 repulsed the Normans with loss, but they continued to threaten it and it was evident that it soon must fall. Constantine XI had done nothing for Italy, 
Romanus did what he could, but it was little, and meanwhile the work of his two toilsome campaigns was undone. Romanus had left Manuel Comnenos in command in the east. He was probably, as the emperor's nominee, ill-supported by his jealous colleagues, and was defeated and captured by Kruj, the Seljuk emir, who commanded on the Tauric frontier, while the great sultan Alp Arslan again invaded Armenia. He attacked and captured Maniskert and Aklat, while Kruj drove through Asia Minor, ravaging and slaughtering, to Konai, Colossi, which was taken and sacked in the horrible Turkish fashion. Alp Arslan, meanwhile, descended from Armenia upon Mesopotamia and attacked Edessa, but here he was stoutly met and repulsed. In 1071, Romanus once more took command. He concentrated on Sebaste and decided in the first instance to recover Aklat and Maniskert. The army was thoroughly discontented and in a state of suppressed mutiny. The German mercenaries were especially turbulent. Discipline was bad, confusion reigned everywhere, the ill-supplied men plundered the countryside of the little left in it by Turkish raiders, the shadow of impending disaster already lay darkly upon the doomed host. The army was indeed large in number, perhaps 100,000 men in all, hardly more, probably less. It is quite certain that many of the Themis were skeletons. The march to the shores of Lake Van seems to have been accomplished without serious trouble. Maniskert was retaken, a strong detachment under the western adventurer Russell Balliol besieged a clot, covered by a second force under Tarkaniotes. All appeared to be going well when Alparslan himself arrived, called in all the detached Turkish hordes, and advanced to relieve Aklat. Romanus, on his side, sent for Russell and Tarkaniotes, but neither obeyed. They abandoned the siege of Aklat and retreated westward. It was practically a case of desertion in face of the enemy. Next, the emperor was weakened by the desertion of his Uzik mercenaries, a more comprehensible action, since they were naturally attracted to their Seljuk kindred, but he was nonetheless determined to fight. His decision has been severely criticized. Quite possibly the desertions had overthrown his mental balance, and he had determined to stake all on a gambler's throw. Still, it must be remembered that Alp Arslan appeared disposed to venture battle, and that there was no reason to believe that in fair fight the mailed horsemen of the imperial army would not be able to break up the Seljuk host. The sultan himself was not confident, and actually sued for peace, in spite of a trifling success which his advance guard had gained over that of the emperor. Romanus haughtily informed the envoys that before terms could be discussed, the sultan must surrender his camp and retire. It was truly a case of pride before a fall, but nonetheless Romanus was right. Civilization, even at its last gasp, must ever remember its dignity in dealing with mere barbarism. By their works, all men must be judged, and the work of the Turks gives them no claim to be regarded otherwise than as barbarians. The haughty terms were, of course, as haughtily refused, and on August 26, the great battle was fought. Romanus placed the eastern Themis under Aliates, general of Cappadocia, on the right, those drafted from Europe on the left. He himself was in the center with his guards and the troops of the central provinces, while a very strong reserve, composed of the mercenaries and feudal levies, was led by Andronicus Ducas, son of the Caesar John. The line appears to have been closely formed and deep. The Seljuks were in very loose order for the better execution of their characteristic Parthian tactics. During the earlier part of the day, Romanus stood on the defensive, and the Seljuks, though they harassed his line, could gain no advantage. But at last his scanty patience was exhausted, and he ordered the advance. The army went forward in admirable order and began to roll the Seljuks back. The thematic horsemen were armed with the bow as well as lance and sword, 
and were able to reply with some effect to the Turkish arrows, but no real success was gained, as the light-armed riders would not close. On the other hand, the Turks could not outflank or surround the army owing to its double-line formation. The emperor saw at last that the continual advance was a mistake, and decided to fall back on the camp for the night. The order was not obeyed with perfect precision, and inevitable occurrence, gaps began to appear, and the Seljuks edged into them. Thereupon Romanus ordered the front line to face about and beat off the Turks. This was done, but Ducas did not halt to support the emperor. Either he was treacherous, or he thought the battle lost, or he could not control the noble commanders of levies and the ill-disciplined mercenaries. The writer's own opinion is that the last theory is probably nearest the truth. The reserve marched away from the field unmolested, and so home, leaving sovereign, army, and doomed Armenia to their terrible fate. The wings were already separated from the center, and all was lost. Having isolated the divisions, the Seljuks surrounded them and destroyed them in detail. The wings fought well, but were broken up and mostly slaughtered, and the whole mass of savage horsemen closed round the center. There the emperor and his chosen troops made a splendid resistance, but at last, well on in the night, the column was pierced through, Romanus unhorsed, wounded, and taken, and the remains of his followers, fighting to the last against overwhelming numbers, were almost all cut to pieces. Romanus was perhaps saved by the fact that his imperial insignia were recognized by the Turks. In the morning he was dragged to the sultan's tent that Alp Arslan might place his foot upon his neck. Yet the sultan, having satisfied his vanity, or perhaps we should in justice say, complied with custom, treated his captive well. He offered to conclude peace on condition of receiving a ransom of one million or one million five hundred thousand diners, or nomismata, and a yearly tribute. He seems to have desired to turn his arms towards the east. Romanus perforce consented. The two gallant foes appear to have conceived a mutual liking, but Romanus, wounded and a prisoner, never forgot that he was a Roman emperor, and when, in conversation, the sultan asked him in what manner he would have been treated had he been captive instead of captor, he grimly replied that he would have been flogged like the robber that he was. Gibbon indulges in one of his customary slighting remarks upon this haughty bearing of a captive sovereign, but he entirely misunderstands the situation. Romanus, whatever his personal character may have been, it was not bad or contemptible, was the sovereign of a great civilized state. The Turkish sultan, brave and just as he was, only the leader of a robber horde. This is all that can be said. Nothing is more base than to contemn estimable persons on the score of their low material civilization, but purposeless destroyers have no claim to favorable regard. Romanus remained only a week with his captor. He returned home to encounter a far more terrible fate at the hands of his own people. The Caesar John had seized his opportunity, had proclaimed himself regent, and had forced the unfortunate Eudocia into a convent. Romanus made an attempt to recover his position by force, but was defeated and captured. He sent all the money in his possession to Alparslan, with a message of mournful magnanimity. Had I remained emperor, all that I promised I would have performed. I am now but a betrayed prisoner, but I send thee all that I possess. This Byzantine gentleman evidently thought it his honorable duty to keep faith even with a robber chief. It is one more of those incidents which remind us that the Eastern Romans were far from degenerate weaklings. John could not allow Romanus to live. The hapless emperor was blinded in such brutal fashion that he died, and so in ruin and horror ended the career of a man who, in courage and energy at least, had been no unworthy wearer of the purple. 
It is curious that the Seljuks for some years after Maniskert left Asia Minor almost alone. Alpar's Lan died in 1073, and the Seljuk Empire was broken up into many conflicting emirates. This, however, was of little benefit to the empire. Russell Balliol revolted in Asia Minor, defeated and captured the Caesar John, and all but set up an independent principality. To put him down, the young Michael VII enlisted Seljuk mercenaries. He was eventually defeated and captured by a young general, Alexius Komnenos, whom we shall soon have occasion to note, but peace did not follow. There was a revolt in Bulgaria, fresh civil broils in Asia Minor, while plague and famine wasted the provinces. Michael VII was a more contemptible Constantine XI. He seems to have learned under the tuition of the literateur Pselos all that could unfit him for his duties. He spent his reign shut up in his palace, occupied with frivolous pursuits. Even his nickname of the Peckfilcher, given because the administration, during a famine, sold only three pecks of wheat to the bushel, was probably not personally merited. He counted for nothing. In 1077, there was still an imperial army about Edessa. It was defeated and driven westward by the Seljuks. Asia Minor was already full of them. The interior was probably so deserted, owing to the disappearance of the freeholding cultivators and the ravages of war, that the intruders were before long in a majority in provinces which had once been the main strength of the state. Their progress was assisted by the fact that in Central Asia Minor the towns were few, and they were glad enough to pay tribute to escape sack. Of the details of this momentous occupation, which went on quietly, and perhaps sometimes imperceptibly, for twenty years, we know hardly anything. There was little concerted opposition. The remains of the Byzantine army were engaged in civil wars, but doubtless there was plenty of purposeless havoc and destruction. The net result was that by 1081 the Seljuks were established on the central plateau, and that many cities paid tribute to them. Cilicia was full of Armenians who had migrated from their desolate homes and were forming a kingdom among the Taurus Mountains. In the northeast, a dynasty called that of Donishmend, the schoolmaster, had arisen. It owed a very slight allegiance to the Grand Sultan of the Seljuks, the Pontic provinces still held by the empire. In 1078, Michael VII was deposed by a revolt headed by Nikephorus Bataniates, who thereupon succeeded to the throne. Nikephorus III had been a brilliant warrior, but he was now old and had no energy except for debauchery. His principal stay was the young general Alexius Komnenos. Nikephorus Briennios, general of Macedonia, revolted. Komnenos routed him at Calavria and also defeated another rebel, Basilakes, but his very success made him an object of terror to his master. Meanwhile, in Asia Minor, Nikephorus Melissinos gave up Nicaea to the Seljuks. Internally, the distress and disorder continued to increase, and Nikephorus debased the coinage to meet his needs. Komnenos now married Irene Dukas, great-niece of Constantine XI. The emperor took alarm, and Komnenos, with a motley army of regulars, mercenaries, retainers, and volunteers, marched on the capital. The gates were opened to his adherent, George Paleologos, on April 1, 1081, and Komnenos, after slight opposition, was proclaimed emperor as Alexius I. Nikephorus III retired into a monastery. Alexius was unable to restrain his motley horde of followers, and there was a great deal of pillage and outrage. For the first time for many centuries, the great capital tasted a little of the horrors of war. End of section 18.